Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Gina Davis knew she wanted to be an actor pretty much her whole life. When she plucked up the courage to tell her parents her plan, they were surprisingly cool with it. When I said I want to major in acting at, at BU, they were like, oh, okay. As if I'd said something you could get a job in, you know. And then when I eventually did get a job, my first job was in Tootsie. It was my first audition even. I, I remember I came home to visit and my mom and the neighbor were talking. My my best friend's mother were talking and she was saying, I can't believe it. Nobody can believe it. This is crazy. And my mom said, but she studied acting in college. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how it works. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Gina Davis. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media studies how to combat stereotypes and achieve gender balance in movies and TV. That's something Gina's been working toward for 14 years now. The campaign even includes movie nights at home. There have been times when I start to lean over. My daughter's now 14 when I lean over to say something. And she says, I know, I noticed, not enough girls. I saw that right away. (laughs) (laughs) She and I will talk about working in film, making yourself heard, and getting into archery. She is super good at archery. Then later, I'll talk to the Emmy-winning comedian and showrunner, Louis C.K. His new show, Horace and Pete, was created in secret with big-time actors including Jessica Lange, Steve Buscemi, and Alan Alda. Louis shot the show in his own way. I've learned that it's okay for an actor to get upset and go back to their trailer and go, oh my God, this is intense. They'll be okay. Pressure's good for performers, you know? Plus, I'll tell you about the website I've been checking back in on regularly for almost 20 years. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Gina Davis starred in Thelma and Louise, it looked like a breakthrough. Oscar nominations, huge box office. It had to be the start of a trend, right? Finally, women could star in buddy movies. But it didn't work out that way. Same thing happened when she starred in A League of Their Own. Acclaim, box office smash, but no more female sports movies. When her first daughter was a young child, Davis started wondering how many women were in the kids' shows she was seeing. She started the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media to find out. The results of that first study were discouraging, and so were the results of the second. The Institute's been studying the sexism in entertainment for eight years now, first at USC's Annenberg School of Communications, now at Mount St. Mary's University. Uh, Gina Davis, uh, it is great to have you on the show. Welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. Um, So... uh... Well, let's start. Let's start by talking about the institute, and we'll get into your career later. But um, you're clearly a person who uh, goes into things whole hog, right? As evidenced by the fact that you uh, once almost became an Olympic archer. <laughs> but um, and we're definitely going to talk about that. Okay. But uh, what led you into this work in such a sort of broad and deep way? Well, uh, it is a tendency of mine to go too far with everything but uh and I but I didn't intend to with this in the beginning uh after I noticed how bereft of uh, female presence kids entertainment seemed to be I 
just started asking people about it. I asked my friends, you know, if they noticed that the movie that just came out had only one female character in it. After the mother dies gruesomely, of course, in the first five minutes. And uh, none of them noticed. So I thought, well, you know, I'm in the industry. I meet a bunch of people. I'll just ask people about it and see what the uh, the thinking is. And uh, so I, if I had a meeting with a studio executive or producer or director or whatever, I'd say, uh, have you ever noticed how few female characters there are in G and PG rated movies? And every single person I asked said, no, that's not true anymore. That's not a problem anymore. And uh, they were very sincere about it and actually passionate about it. They weren't saying, eh, no, it's not a big deal. They said, we care about that here. We work on it. We talk about it all the time. And we made – and they would name a movie with one female character as proof that gender inequality had been fixed. So this was very striking to me that the people creating this stuff had no idea – how few female characters there were. So that's what made me think maybe if I had the numbers, it would make a difference. And that started the whole thing. I mean, it is something that uh, I think, you know, because of a combination of a sexist society and my own male privilege, <laughs> uh, it's easy for me not to think of. But if I think of uh, the, you know, the movies that my sons watch, I mean, like Toy Story is a beautiful, fantastic movie. Absolutely. Uh, like a real genuine four-star movie. Uh, but like it's like Bo Peep. Um, Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> like they added one or two more. There's Barbie. <laughs> I don't think they added her till later. But anyway, um, it, it is kind of a terrifying thing. Was it something that you had thought about in your own work prior to having that realization about the stuff your daughter was watching? Well. I was certainly aware that there were fewer really great parts for women. Uh, but I think anybody, if you ask them, are there fewer starring roles for women? I think your average moviegoer would say, well, yeah, it seems so. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, in, certainly in the earlier days, I was getting a lot of really great parts. And uh, my whole impression was things are getting better. And then, like you said, the thing happened with – Thumb and Louise and League of Their Own, and I thought, oh, yeah, well, yeah, now everything's getting fixed and it's all good. And uh, it took me a while to realize, uh, quite a while to realize that things weren't getting better because part of it is you expect things to get better, but part of it is the press kept saying, now things are better. When there was a movie that struck it big starring women, like I remember when First Wives Club came out. Oh, this fixes everything now. Fifty-year-old women can lead movies and whatever, and you sort of buy it. Uh, so it took a while until I started saying, "Interviewers always wanted to know, are things getting better for women?" And I said, "Well, it seems like it." You know, it took me a while to say, "I don't know." You know, Google it, find out. Were you usually answering interviews in like the voice of a, a like a corn pone guy and overalls? <laughs> I know. That's a weird impression of myself, right? <laughs> kind of, oh, shucks, Ernest. Yeah, I guess I think so. Um, one of the most interesting things about the studies that the Institute has done, um, and one that really took my breath away when I first heard about it when it came out a couple of years ago, was a study of the gender distribution in crowd scenes. Mm, mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> well, it's it's bad in speaking characters. It's a, it's a really bad ratio. But um, in crowd scenes, 
particularly in animated movies, there it, it's far worse than the speaking characters. Um, in some uh, animated movies, the crowd scenes are only seventeen uh, percent female characters, oh, which is what absurd. It's like what <laughs> I know. It's really inexplicable. So in fiction, in create, I mean, especially stuff for kids. Uh, it's all invented, you know, outer space colonies or underwater kingdoms or whatever, and uh, the female population could be that low. I, I don't know how to explain it except uh, my theory is that uh, Hollywood writers think women don't gather. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I think what it what it really speaks to is that it is a fundamental structural issue, that it's not necessarily about malevolent actors. Not at all. Uh, and I don't mean actors as in actors doing acting, but people doing things. It's right. not about malevolent people. Right. It's about uh, a fundamental problem where, right. you know, even something as neutral as a crowd right. is so profoundly imbalanced. Right, right. And I think it's attributable to unconscious bias because when I had the numbers and I went back to the studios, you know, I'd say, can I talk to everybody? And uh, their jaws were on the ground. They were stunned. They had no idea, but wanted to change it. You know, there's been so much change um, just as a result of the meetings that we take that it's it's really uh, heartening. When it, This is a good example of what you're talking about. When I was doing Stuart Little, there's a scene uh, where there's a boat race with remote control boats. And I was watching as the assistant director was setting it up, and he'd choose a little boy and give him a remote and have him sit down on the edge of the water and then choose a little girl behind each boy. And I saw what he was doing, and uh, I just went over and casually said, hey, do you think we could give half of the remotes to girls? And he, like, slapped his forehead, and I was like, oh, yes, of course, and switched it. And it felt so stupid that he hadn't thought of it himself. But no, but I promise you, nobody thinks of it themselves unless, you know, it gets pointed out. How does this uh, touch your life? And we'll leave aside your working life for a minute. Um, but how do you how do you feel like it touches your home life? I mean, I'm sure you have three kids. Right. I'm sure they watch film and television some anyway. Yeah. Um, so how do you think about responding to it as a parent? Well, uh what I've done from the beginning, and I actually recommend this uh, to folks who ask, is I watch with them whenever possible. I always, when they were little, I always watched everything with them, and uh, you know I limit what they see, of course, but they see what other kids see generally. Uh, but I can be their, um, uh, you know, window into the unreality of what they're seeing. I can point out things that will mitigate. That impact. So I'll say, "Hey, did you notice there's only one girl in that group? Why do you think that is? Or um, do you think girls could do what those boys are doing? Or why do you think she's wearing that if she's going to go rescue somebody? That seems inappropriate." Uh, so they are actually um, they are pretty media savvy now. I have to say, they notice it themselves. They point it out to me all do the time. Do they get annoyed with you about it? No, no. Although. There have been times when I start to lean over. My daughter's now 14 when I lean over to say something. And she says, I know. I noticed. Not enough girls. I saw that right away. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're very attuned to it. Um, so when you – once uh, you and the scholars who work on these studies do the counting, mm. 
Um, what are the things that you then do with the numbers besides being kind enough to come talk to me on bullseye here? Right. But uh, what else are you doing with those with that information that you're gathering? Well, the number one thing we do is meet with everyone who creates children's media. So we visit all the studios, all the networks, all the guilds, production companies, uh, you know, pretty much everybody. We try to saturate Hollywood, and, and we've been doing it a while now, so we visited most places many times and try to hit all their divisions like Disney. Uh, I can't even count how many times we've been over there. They have us back over and over and over. They have lots of divisions, of course, um, and they want us to talk to all of them. They are not at all – Skeptical. First of all, they believe in the in the research, and uh, people who make kids media, I think, do feel a sense of uh, obligation to you know make sure that it's that it's good for kids. And uh, they had no idea they were sending such a negative message to kids about the value of girls. So we've seen a lot of improvement already. There's now two girl dogs on Paw Patrol. That's a one hundred percent increase. Wow. That's breaking news from the parenting front lines, Sheila Davis. That's fabulous. Probably I had something to do with it. I have to guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you went up to Canada and you gave those Paw Patrollers a, a taste of your mind. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly need a, right. A husky named Everest. Right. But it's much more efficient to use the research that way instead of trying to you know, educate the entire populace. It's efficient and uh, they. Don't feel threatened. I never bust anybody publicly or talk about a particular movie that didn't do a good, good job. So um, it's a it's a great relationship. Tell me why you've chosen that path. Why don't you bust people publicly or talk about particular shows that do a bad job, like Paw Patrol? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Paw but look, a good show. they just made a, a nice improvement. We have yeah, to encourage yeah, good modest work. Good work, Paw Patrol. <laughs> um, uh, because. Uh, I don't think in this case it would work that well. I was very aware that the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, they all publish the numbers every year. They have women's committees on the, you know, on, in the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild and whatever. And um, the numbers never seem to move. In fact, the the percentage of female characters in films has been exactly the same since 1946. So we're talking about seven decades of stagnation, utter stagnation. So uh, I felt that um, I had to try a different kind of approach. And plus, I want to keep working for these people. So, you know, I, uh, I keep a very friendly relationship with everybody. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Gina Davis. She's been an advocate for gender equality and representation in Hollywood, and she founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. She also founded the Bentonville Film Festival, which promotes women and diverse voices in film. The festival takes place this week. I feel like I, I read a story about um, you showing up to work on Thelma and Louise and um, realizing that all of your notes about your character were yeah. were like a setup based on how can I use being nice to convince uh, Ridley Scott to change this. Right. Uh, can you tell me about that? Yeah. So we were going to have a meeting with just Susan and I and Ridley. I'd never met Susan yet. 
and just go over, do we have any thoughts or things we wanted to change or whatever? And uh, I had planned out everything that I wanted to change by deciding how I would bring it up. So this one, I could probably say this as a joke, but he might understand the truth behind it, or maybe I can make him think this one is his idea. This one I'll just bring up on the set quietly. This one I'll just do without telling him I'm going to do it. You know, and so all this kind of girly, non-threatening ways that I could make sure there wasn't the slightest possibility he would think I was arrogant or, you know, had ideas of my own, basically, because um, uh, my number one goal in life was that everybody liked me. I was never any problem. And uh, and so we show up and I meet Susan. She's so impressive. And uh, sit down. And I swear, I think it was on page one, she said, uh, now, this first line I have, I I don't think I should say that. Let's just cut that line. How about that? Or we can put it on a page two, whichever you like. And I, my mouth was just hanging. I couldn't believe. And it's ridiculous that I would be in my 30s and feel like this. But I'd never seen a woman behave like that before to just just say what she thought without first saying, you know, if you don't mind, maybe you'd like this or maybe you won't, you know, and just say it. And of course, he reacted completely normally and said, "Oh yeah, or, or no, let's do this instead, or whatever." And uh, the entire movie was like that for me. It was just a total lesson in how to be yourself, how to actually, you know, just say things and uh, have an opinion, and that, that it's okay. Do you feel like you were afraid to do that when you were younger? Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, I was very shy, but I think I was shy because I didn't want to volunteer uh, opinions or take a stance. <laughs> you know that I'll just I'll just be very shy, and 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 uh, that's how I'll be able to remain non-threatening and everything. It was definitely a part of my personality for as long as my whole life has been an adventure in how to you know rise above that and conquer it. Uh, if this is a weird question, don't answer it. But you're like six foot tall or so. Mm. Um, when you were like a teenager, yeah. Um, I don't know when you got to be as tall as you are, but when I was a baby, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you were like a teenager, were you comfortable in your body, and were you comfortable with the kind of just impact that you made being? taller than most of the other women that were around you? Uh, no. And a lot of the other dudes, and too? Mo most of the other all dudes? All of the women and the vast majority of the dudes I was taller than. Um, and uh, uh, no, I wasn't comfortable. I think my fondest wish was to take up less space in the world. And uh, uh, You understand that's a pretty unusual thing for a professional performer to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but I really, oh, I really was uh, self-conscious. I didn't want to try sports because I was afraid um, of being laughed at or that, you know, that I, I was sure I must be uncoordinated. I just didn't want to try anything. And, uh, um, yeah, I was, I was very, very self-conscious. And then even the few times that I would let myself out of the box or something, uh, Somebody would say, uh, oh, 
you laugh too loud. That's very unattractive. You should you should laugh more quietly. And I'm like, how much more quiet can I get? Uh, but that was always the message. Don't wear those shoes. Don't. I made a lot of my own clothes. Don't wear clothes like that. Don't just just don't be you. Uh, and and I tried not to. What kind of clothes did you make? A lot of a lot of things. You know, I just have a very vivid imagination, and I made a lot of crazy stuff. I made things out of leather and suede, and I don't know. Give me examples, please. Okay. Uh, I one time made, uh, you know, those, those really, it was like a jumpsuit with really, really wide legs. That was kind of in style when I was in high school. Very, very sort wide. Sort of like something Maurice White from Earth, Wind, and Fire yes, would wear. Yes, exactly. And one side was solid green and one side was, uh, had a green background but had polka dots on it. And then, of course, the first thing somebody said was, you look like a circus clown. <laughs> And I had to get through the day without going home and changing. But uh. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed here. I'm. All, I mean, I'm. One thing that I'm impressed with is that for a young woman whose stated desire was to be smaller in the world, that you were making circus clown clothing for your <laughs> clown pants, right? Well, I know it's. I true. mean, I want to be clear. Like, I support circus clown clothing, <laughs> but. It's absolutely true. I don't know. I think I just wasn't good at blending into the like I really wanted to, but uh, or I was trying to thwart myself unconsciously or something. But and I, I had you know I was so tall, but then I had platform shoes. I had great big ones with like a rainbow on them or something. And I remember at a church youth group meeting, uh, the the junior pastor asked. The guys, what kind of girl? Ask one of the guys, what kind of girl would you like picture yourself dating? And uh, he said, "Well, I'm not sure. I just know she wouldn't be wearing those shoes." <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I went. I made it through high school without having a boyfriend. <laughs> let's just say. <sighs> did you? Uh, uh, did you think of yourself as good looking? No, no, really not. Um, but. I held out hope because my best friend's mother constantly told me I was pretty and that I would realize that later. And I thought she was crazy, but I had the secret hope that maybe adults will think I am somehow <laughs> in, this, in this distant future. Somehow I'll become attractive. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Gina Davis, who's founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media and the Bentonville Film Festival. Were you performing in as a teenager? No, I, I didn't want to uh, be in the drama club or do – it was kind of a secret. I, I announced to my parents when I was three that I was going to be in movies, but uh, I kept it pretty close to the vest. It's really hard to get in movies without telling anyone. It is, but I figured – I'd had no clue that you could get in movies without going to college first. And so I figured I'll just study acting in college and then it'll all work out. So what was the first time you uh, uh, you came out as an aspiring performer? Uh, it was the first time I performed, actually. Yeah, like when did, you, when did you actually admit to the world that this was what you wanted for yourself? Well, I was very into music. I was in every chorus and choir and uh, I played the piano and the flute and the pipe organ and uh, I took my the music teacher in, in high school aside and said where do you go to college if you want to be an actor 
And he said, oh, Boston University. And so that was it for me. I didn't have to ask anybody else. That, that That's what I wanted to do. And I eventually ended up there. Not like Juilliard or something. No, I mean— I, I mean, no offense to yeah. Boston University. No, no, but that's what he <laughs> it's said. It's just an unusually specific— It was. It was yeah. extremely specific. At the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Right, right. BU. Maybe that's what small town music teachers would think of rather than Juilliard. Was there uh was there a point um when you were uh like late in your teens, early in your twenties when uh you realized that it was something that you actually could do? Well embarrassingly I was one hundred percent positive the entire time. Absolutely really? positive. Yeah, that that's what I was going to do. I had no backup plan. My parents were unsophisticated enough not to force me to have a backup plan. I mean, we had we had no clue about anything to do with uh anything like this. My parents were from Vermont, you know, very small town, grow your own food, build your own house kind of people. And uh when I said I want to major in acting at at BU, they were like, "Oh, okay." As if I'd said something you could get a job in, you know. And uh, and then when I eventually did get a job, my first job was in Tootsie. It was my first audition even. Uh, I, I remember I came home to visit and my mom and the neighbor were talking. My, my best friend's mother were talking and she was saying, I can't believe it. Nobody can believe it. This is crazy. And my mom said, but she studied acting in college. <laughs> <laughs> So we were kind of like, yeah, well, that was what was supposed to happen. <laughs> Why don't we listen to a scene, you, my guest Gina Davis, in Tootsie from 1982. So um, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character uh, has just been cast on a soap opera. Uh, he auditioned as a woman. And he, he meets April, one of the other actors on the show, played by uh, my guest Gina Davis. And uh, Dustin's character speaks first. He's a bit flustered. Uh, by April walking into the dressing room in her underwear. Oh, I'm Hi. sorry. Oh, that's... Oh, jeez. Oh, that's quite all right. Uh, I'm April Page. Well, How are you, you okay? my, what a nice-looking table. Really? Yes, it's very yeah. smooth. And that's a very a good idea, a, a socket for a plug. Yeah, well, we get everything. Yes, I see. Oh, just push all that stuff out of the way. Make yourself at home, Thank okay? Okay. Yes. Uh, one more thing, Miss Michaels. I forgot to give you these. Thank you. Oh, are these for today? Yes. Uh, they always throw stuff into the last minute. You could lose your mind around here. Oh, my goodness. What's wrong? I have to kiss Dr. Brewster. Oh, uh, yeah. He kisses all the women on the show. We call him the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> when you got to the movie, yeah, I think that's the expression they use, uh, did you feel like you could do it? I did. I did. I was a little uh I was a little nervous coming in. I didn't know I'd never, you know, obviously been on a set. I, I thought they would expect me to know where to stand or how you know what to do, but um but I was pretty confident. Yeah. I in fact uh we shot that the first thing on my first day and um <clears throat> while we were shooting that the take they used is where um uh, Dustin accidentally walked into the door. But, you know, we just kept going and I ad-libbed something or whether. And uh, after that, Sidney Pollack said, C come over here. Why are you not nervous? <laughs> <He> said, <laughs> oh, am I? 
I well, I don't know. I, I just not. And he's like, it's very strange, but it's great. But it's very strange that you're not nervous. Um, but I'm just uh, I've never had nerves about it. Did you feel by then like your appearance was not going to embarrass you? Well, I had gone through a whole period uh, before that for a couple of years as a model um, because I didn't know nobody said it be you how you're supposed to get a job in the movies. And I went to New York instead of L.A. because nobody told me you should go to L.A. instead. So um, my big plan was I'll become a model and then they'll just offer me parts like Christy Brinkley was getting parts and stuff uh, because, of course, it's much easier to become a supermodel. Uh, than an actor. So sure. uh, I didn't, but I did work. I did, you know, catalogs and uh, I was on the cover of New Jersey Monthly. And Congratulations. Things like that. Yes. I heard you, you were something called a, a living mannequin. Is I was. That true? I was. I pretended to be a mannequin in store windows. Where, um, please explain that. Okay. So I was working at Ann Taylor on Fifth Avenue and as a sales girl and uh, – uh, we always dressed in the clothes of the store, and one day there was a, there were mannequins sitting at a table, eating plastic lunch in, in the clothes, and uh, there was one empty chair. And I said, "Dare me to go in the window to the other girls," and uh, I didn't need them to dare me. I, I just decided to go in the window and then just freeze. And people stopped and to see what I was going to do, and then I just didn't move. I'd never thought about whether I had a an ability with motionlessness or not, but I just sat there and didn't move. And uh, more and more people kept gathering and couldn't figure out, because they hadn't seen me walk in, they couldn't figure out what, what they were looking at. And the other people were like, just wait, just wait. And then maybe after five or ten minutes, I moved. And uh, what? And then more people gathered. And anyway, the manager came and said, Gina, what are you, get out of the window. What are you doing? And then she saw the big crowd and she said, no. Oh, Stay in the window. And uh, so they hired me from then on to be uh, in the window on the weekends and then other stores did too. But anyway, modeling plan. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, because you asked me about did I decide that I was attractive. Yeah. So what I decided was because I was getting you know, $200 an hour back in the day was unbelievable to, to be a model – and uh, I decided that I knew how to trick people into thinking I was attractive. So I had decided that I was attractive, but that it was uh, a trick. <laughs> I mean, here in the radio industry, we're known for our good looks. Absolutely. But, um, less so than in, you know, movie stars. Right. Um, so it's just, it's like, it's really interesting to me. Just this kind of like, what's it like, <laughs> basically? And I feel like there's. It would be weird if your if your identity was tied up in how good looking you are. But at the same time, I think um, in any profession where uh, you are looked at mm. um, as part of your job, uh, especially if you're a woman, where you're looked at as part of your gender, mm. um, it is. You know, it must be very difficult to maintain some some distance between uh, what you have uh, done by choice and what is what has been given to you by nature, 
and the weird, gross, dark stuff about people looking at you. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's, that's the best I could do, too. <laughs> I'm a professional. I've been doing this 15 years. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure I even... I'm sorry. It may not have been a question. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it, it sounds like partly what you were looking for was a way to uh, have an identity that included your own agency, mm. that you were doing something. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Is that possible? Is that's that true? possible. Yeah. Should I check with your therapist? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I will be. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting, huh? It's possible. It's possible. Did you like being a movie star? Uh, you know, I, here's what I think about uh, that, about being recognized and everything. Uh, it's For me, it's never been at a level that's uncomfortable um, where I'd have to actually leave somewhere or, or avoid something because of being noticed. I, I go to restaurants. I go to the movies. I do anything I want. Um, and always have, uh, and if p- people recognize me, uh, they say something nice, ninety nine percent of the time, and uh, they just want to say I like you or I like your work or whatever. And uh, this is a very nice thing, and uh, and a lot of times uh, it's a very positive thing. Somebody, I might be in a line, and the person before me gets treated rudely, and then all of a sudden I'm treated really nice. So I try to be very grateful that I get the good version of people most of the time. It seems like you've also had some some of your landmark works, uh, Thelma and Louise, Only Their Own, uh, Tootsie. Those are all movies that in addition to being great movies are movies that um, uh, really impacted people's lives and Mm. identities Mm. in a way that... um, I don't know what's maybe Titanic didn't do as much. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have friends. I have a friend who's uh, in, she's probably 30 ish and uh, plays baseball. And um, I don't think that there's like a more important thing in the world to her than a mm-hmm. league of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it must be that when you, I presume that when you interact with people often, that's an element of it, that you've been in these things that, that ended up being important to people. Mm hmm. It's a very special thing, you know. I'm so grateful that I was in uh, uh, played some roles that meant something to people. It was a huge change when uh, people started recognizing me from Thumb and Louise. Like we had no idea anybody was going to react the way they did, no clue, and uh, total surprise. And so before. You know, people might say, hey, the Beetlejuice, the fly, or whatever. This is my bug phase. But, uh, uh, but you know, two great movies. Two but... great movies, right? But uh, when people recognized me from, from that movie, they wanted to talk about it. They had passionate ideas and feelings about it. And then League of Their Own, it was young women or girls uh, saying, I play sports because of that movie. And... Uh, and who knew that movies were going to live as long as they do now? You know, Thumb uh, Louise is 25 this year and League of Their Own will be 25 next year. But I had the same number of women come up to me and say they play sports 
because of a League of Their Own as when it first came out. So. You yourself took up sports as an adult. Yes. What were the circumstances? I was a very late-blooming athlete. Yeah, so I was, I, like I said, I was very physically shy as a kid, and then I got cast in League of Their Own, and I had to play the best baseball player anyone has ever seen. And so uh, we had coaches, you know, very major league coaches, very professional people, and uh, and I trained, you know, as hard as I could, tried as hard as I could, and and they soon started saying, wow, you have natural athletic ability. And I was like, I do? It was so exciting. And uh, I learned how to play really good movie baseball. Uh, and uh, uh, and then I had other parts where I learned special skills also like uh, Cutthroat Island and Long Kiss Goodnight I learned sword fighting and pistol shooting and ice skating and taekwondo and um, all kinds of stuff. And uh, and I was good at all of those too. And so that's that's what made me think I want to take up a sport in in real life and not just the movie version of it, you know. She did take up a sport and she almost made it to the Olympics in archery. We'll hear all about that when I continue my conversation with Gina Davis after a break. Plus, comedian Louis C.K. has won a bunch of Emmy Awards by taking his creative career into his own hands and running his own TV shows. We'll talk about why he's not scared to commit lots of time and millions of dollars to his creative vision. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from The Black Tux, the new way to rent a tuxedo. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome modern suits, far from the polyester mess you'll get at that mall rental stand. Select from complete looks or build your own. The suit will arrive seven days before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on. If the fit needs a tweak, the Black Tux will do whatever it takes to fix it in time. Shipping is free both ways. If you need to rent a suit or a tuxedo for an upcoming wedding or special event, you don't have to do it the old-fashioned way. Visit theblacktux.com bullseye and experience a new way to rent. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Let me introduce you to NPR Music's discovery podcast, Alt Latino. Hosts Felix Contreras and Jasmine Gard are your guides into the world of Latino arts and culture. And they're not taking a stodgy museum tour. Alternative approaches to traditional music, interviews with cultural icons like Rita Moreno and Carlos Santana, as well as contemporary vanguards like Calle Treche and Juno Diaz. Find Alt Latino at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is Bullseye. I'm talking to the actor Gina Davis, who founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. So, um, as we were saying before the break, you ended up taking up archery pretty seriously. What was it like for you when you started trying to do that? Well, embarrassingly, my coach says this is true. I don't remember this. But when I took it up at 41, at the first lesson... He says, I asked, how old is too old to go to the Olympics at archery <laughs> before I had shot the thing? Uh, so that's – yeah, I go too far with everything. But uh, I, w- I picked it up pretty quickly, yeah. I mean it was it was between when I took it up and was a semifinalist for the um, Olympic team was two and a half years. So 
I, I picked it up pretty quick. I mean, it took me five years. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Twice, twice as long. Twice as long. Yeah. yeah. I just said I didn't have your natural talent. <laughs> As you know, as someone who you've you know you've described yourself as someone who wants everyone to like you, um, or wanted everyone to like you, um, were you able to uh, to quiet the kind of natural self criticism? That's that's a very insightful question because that is a huge part of it. Uh, soon after I started, uh, I had an excellent coach, Don Rabska, and uh, soon into the training, uh, I'd shoot and he'd say suddenly, what were you just thinking? And I'd have to think and I'd say, I, th- I was thinking I suck. And then another time he'd ask me and I'd say, I was thinking you think I suck. And I realized that I hadn't really been aware of my self-talk until then and I became hyper-aware and realized that I was just constantly putting myself down every minute. Uh, and not only just in archery, but all day long, everywhere. And so I really tried to conquer it. And every time I would, I just became aware when I, particularly in archery, obviously first, uh, if I was thinking, oh, that sucked, I suck, I can't, I think, no, it didn't. I'm doing the best I can. I'll be better tomorrow. I'm doing the best I can. And, uh, it bled over into my real life too because it was so overwhelming the amount of negative self-talk that I had going on. Uh, it was like having an unnecessary person beating me up all day. you know. And I, I, I know that everybody you know, has some degree of problem with this, but it really changed my life because the intense degree that I had, um, you know, this inner critic going on. Do you feel like the way that that change in your life, that you like left, you, you didn't act very much for a while, you went and semi-qualified for the Olympics in archery, uh, mm. and it had this pretty profound impact on the on the way that you lived your life right. when you were a right. full-on grown-up. Right. That's true. Uh, you'd been married several times before, but you uh, a lasting marriage with children mm-hmm. in your personal life and in your uh, in your professional life, this mm. commitment to, you know, right. to doing this hard work to, to you know, make this industry better? Well, it definitely has impacted everything um, in a positive way. Uh, it's just made me so much more confident, like... Uh, working with Susan Sarandon and having her be a role model, uh, you know, had a huge impact on me. Um, It all just made me feel like it's okay to be me. It's okay to take up space in the world. um, I feel comfortable speaking up and doing things that I think are important. So, yeah, I think it had a big – it had a big impact. Also, archery – afforded me an opportunity to experience success that was measurable rather than uh, subjective, which everything is in this industry. But it was suddenly like, oh, it doesn't matter what I look like while I'm doing it or what I'm wearing. It's only the points. And I had never done something except schoolwork, you know, that was measured in numbers. And 
And I loved that about it. I really, really liked that about it. Well, I mean, you say, like, I think even above and beyond the part about it being objective rather than subjective, generally, mm. um, you know, I think that the the experience of subjectivity for an actress is very different than it is for a an, an actor, mm. but for many other people, you know, a visual artist or something like sure. that whose work is seen because of sexism, because so right. much of the work is tied up in, you know, in a sexist system and the, yeah. the male gaze. Right. Absolutely. Do you feel like the work that you're doing now is uh, changing things? Yes, I do. I'm very optimistic. Um, despite... You're very optimistic based on experience or very yes. optimistic by nature? No. Well, um, I think by nature, too, but... Uh, but uh, but no, I can be very, uh, you know, um, I can look at things very clinically. But uh, but based on the experiences that we've had and the um, the response that we've gotten, I'm very optimistic that no matter how intractable this problem has been and how invisible it's been, profoundly invisible, uh, it's now getting noticed and uh, that people are are willing to make. Uh, changes and so finally, I do believe that very soon we'll get um, momentum going as far as on-screen portrayals. I can't promise that we're going to have momentum behind the scenes um, anytime soon. It's that's a much tougher nut to crack, you know, in the directing and writing and producing. When you go and talk to uh, good-hearted, well-meaning people who agree that it's a problem. And are surprised at the extent to which it's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you ask them or, to change or suggest that they change specifically? Like what are the actions that you would right. have them take? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that um, because it's very uh, specifically not please make more movies starring a female character. I think if that was my goal – it would be very hard. It would be very hard slog because you've probably run into this, the concept that uh, women will watch men but men won't watch women. So it's not our fault. We have to make everybody male in the lead characters. And uh, no matter how many movies starring women come out that are successes, we never seem to get momentum going. I think it's because there's this just fear that that's true and so we can't do that. And those movies must be a one-off. Uh, so I don't say that. Um, what I say is whatever you're going to make, whatever you're already going to make, I'm not saying add a message, do anything different. Whatever you're already making, before you cast it, uh, go through and change a bunch of first names to female and add some diversity in there too. And uh, wherever it says a crowd gathers, put comma, which is half female. And there you have it. You've got a gender balanced script probably. It might be more interesting now that uh, some of the characters have had a gender swap because they won't be stereotyped clearly if they were meant to be a man. And uh, um, and it's easy and it's fun, simple. Um, ultimately, we want writers to write parts for women. Uh, and it's great when they do write incredible um, 
well-drawn characters uh, for women, but it doesn't happen anywhere near enough, and it'd be simple enough in so many, many cases. There's very few characters that couldn't be either a man or a woman. Well, Gene Davis, I'm so grateful that you uh, came in to talk to us today. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The other thing I say to them is uh, uh, figure out what part I'm going to play. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like to work. <laughs> Gina Davis uh, founded the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, um, and she's also founded the Bentonville Film Festival. Uh, in Arkansas, a film festival uh, dedicated to uh, promoting uh, gender equality and diversity in uh, film, which is uh, one of, if not the only, film festival in the world that guarantees distribution to its winners. It is. It's the only one. Yeah, you get theatrical, uh, TV, digital, and DVD release. The whole nine yards, in other words. All of it, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Louis C.K. has always made things himself. He used to make short films, the kind that uh, don't really get released anywhere back when he was a comedy writer and uh, beginning stand-up. When he got the deal to make his FX show, Louis, which has been incredibly critically acclaimed, it was basically with the condition that he could make whatever he wanted. He's made and distributed his last few comedy specials himself, and now he's made his own TV show uh, with his own money for his website. Horace and Pete is about brothers, two in a long line who run a bar in Brooklyn. Here's a scene from the show. Horace explains to a customer, that's Horace's, Louis C.K.'s character, why he's being charged extra for a beer. You all right? What's up? Yeah, uh, I was charged four fifty for Budweiser. Yeah. That guy was charged $3. Uh, just not sure why the discrepancy. He's been coming here a long time. Oh, so... Is that a privilege for just that one guy, or is like more people that some get to people, pay? Some uh, people pay four fifty. Some people pay three. Okay. Um, how do you decide that? Is there like a list, or if he looks like him, he pays three dollars. If he looks like you, he pays four fifty. <laughs> so just out and out discrimination. Um, are you aware how totally unfair and not okay that is? I'm not sure what group. I'm Jewish. I'm gay. Here's the thing. You're getting more for your money than he is. How so? Because, well, see, you come here and you make fun of the place because it's an old Brooklyn dive bar, so you and your friends get to enjoy that part of it, and then also you get to have a beer. But he just gets the beer. See, you're here ironically, but he's really here because he just lives on the corner. Horace and Pete's 10 episodes are on louisck.com. Louis C.K., welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to see you. Nice to be here. Uh, this is maybe the uh, quietest television show I've ever watched. Yeah, that sounds true, yeah. <laughs> it is. There's very little um, track. There's very little uh, ambience track. And there's no score to speak of. I, I had noticed in the first episode that there was uh, basically no music in the show, mm-hmm. although there was a there was a little like uh, diegetic music in in a, on a bar jukebox or something. I think maybe in the first episode, but mm-hmm. um, in the second episode there was a scene uh, where your character and your character's daughter are having a chat on a park bench, mm-hmm. and it was dead silent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was almost like a soap opera when they do outdoor scenes. It's just weird. 
yeah, it, it, it needed to feel like a stage play for me. And I didn't want to, I figured the more production value I add to it in terms of sound, building sound and stuff, the further away it was getting from this one idea. So I thought it was better to just let people get accustomed to grow immune to it or whatever it is, or just start to feel it. There was a scene uh, in the second episode where Edie Falco enters and has a long exchange with the people behind the bar, and uh, it's silent, and there's no music mm-hmm. and no anything. And uh, my wife and I were joking with each other that probably that part in the screen uh, said, actors act. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for, you mean like a closed captions or something? Or no, what? no, like the stage direction said, E. Falco enters. Actors act. Actors act. <laughs> and then the dialogue. <laughs> right. What was the scene? I don't remember that. It was She talks to the, uh, the customers? She's mad about something when she mm-hmm. enters... Uh, she looks at Steve Buscemi's character, I think. No, that's right. Okay. Yes, it was all silent. Yeah. Because what it was is the episode before she had this huge confrontation where she's suing her family members, which happens. And then now she's coming back to just try to live normal life, come in and flow with her family, who she's in legal dispute with. And Uncle Pete and her had had terrible words. So it was Uncle Pete, it was Alan Alda's character. So she walks in, and it's scripted. All the beats are scripted that she walks in and looks at him in a sort of testing way with, you know, she's guarded, but she's looking at him, and he smiles at her. And so she softens. She says, hi, Pete, and then he frowns, and then she feels like he trapped her, which he did. So then she says, she curses and goes upstairs. So uh, I hear you say that you wanted it to feel like a stage play. It has the production qualities of a television show. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel like you're watching great performances. No. Yeah, it's different than that. Yeah. Uh, but why did you want it to feel like a play? And if you wanted it to feel like a play, why did you want it to feel like a play that did not have an audience? Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. And, and I thought about that because, I mean, I started to realize that there wasn't I, – I wasn't trying to emulate anything. I was trying to take pieces from each kind of experience. So when you watch a play, you're in an audience – and not only are you in an audience, you're a separate. You're in a separate world from the stage. You're in this dark place, and you're also in a community. You're with a group of people, and it's you and them. It's still a one-on-one relationship, you to the play, but also you are in this quiet, respectfully hushed community. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Louis C.K. He's best known for his Emmy-winning TV show, Louis. He's got a new show, which he made himself in secret. It's called Horace and Pete. It's available at louisck.com. Can I ask you something about Alan Alda? Yeah, ask me anything you want about Alan Alda. Great. That's the that's the promise I've always wanted to hear. <laughs> uh, so doesn't mean I'm going to answer it, but I don't think okay. I know anything about him that I, nobody should <laughs> know. I don't have any you, secret, bad secrets. You about didn't Alan see him do something no, awful. I didn't, didn't have see to, him sell some secrets to the Soviets. No, I didn't have to back out of a room slowly <laughs> with Alan Alda. Um. So I don't think Alan Alda is unusual in this cast in his acting ability. You have some really brilliant actors mm-hmm. in this show, uh, basically everyone except you. Yes, that's um. exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's like, why I have almost no lines. I, I just listen to everybody. Edie, that's the that – you, uh, you do a really impressive job of that. That is a hard acting thing. Um, it's not that hard. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, but like, you know, Edie Falco's no joke. You know what I mean? No. And, 
But of all the people in your show, uh, Alan Alda is uh, the only one who uh, I can't imagine being a real person. Uh, like, I mean, I know he's a real person and I've seen mm-hmm. him host the PBS show Scientific American mm-hmm. Frontiers. Yeah. So, like, I know he's not a character. Right. Uh, but uh, you put Alan Alda in your show not to do Alan Alda stuff. Um, so how on earth did you end up there? Well, there's certain times you cast. Casting is a very tricky thing and it's. Really, it's one of the things I love most about doing this stuff. And casting this show was, you know, sixty percent of the whole ball game. Um, and Alan is was a different case than everybody else. Um, uh, Steve Buscemi's part was written for him, and so was Edie's, and even Jessica Lang's. Everybody was kind of had people in mind. And there's been a few people. There's a few of the big characters in the show that were. Um, written for somebody and they couldn't do it and then I found someone else. So you sort of – but if you go with what you see in your mind, you you can't do that 100% because no human being fits that. So you want to have somebody who adds something you didn't expect, right? There's all kinds of things. But Alan was a totally different case, which is just that he's great. I've always loved him and I've always thought he had tremendous range and diversity. I mean I've, for a lot of people, the Alan Alda trip was going from MASH, which I grew up with to uh, um, Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, uh, his part in that he was a, just a, a jerk, this really narcissistic jerk. And it was like, but I that's Hawkeye. I love Hawkeye. That's not Hawkeye at all, but I love this character. And then he started to repeat that. And, you know, on West Wing, when he played this erstwhile Republican senator, and yet you got to see his vulnerabilities and stuff and tons of things. I just think he's... A huge talent, a great, great artist. That's why I hired him. Not because I thought he looked like Uncle Pete or sounded like him. I actually didn't think he did. But I thought, and then he wanted the job. <laughs> he wanted it. So somebody's desire to do a thing plus their ability, you just go, he'll do something. I just know that this guy, and I had time. I, I cast him way back and feels like it was September. So I felt like his brain plus time equals great work. I don't care what he comes up with. So I really just trusted him. And every time that we read together, he asked for lots of time to read. Any opportunity I would give him, I'd go to his house. He'd come to my house. We had table reads. Every time he read it, he got better and better. He he turned it into, he sculpted it and sculpted it. So It must have been kind of amazing to uh, uh, basically invite like Edie Falco and Steve Buscemi, <laughs> all these brilliant actors and actresses, Basically, just be like, hey, you guys want to come over to my house yeah. and do a play? <laughs> it is, was weird. And it, and because the project was secret and uh, I didn't really make official deals with these people for a while, it felt really strange because I, it, was just, it did feel like they're just coming over my house. And I read this stuff. It didn't feel real for a long time. And also because we couldn't shoot until we were going in the air. So it was there wasn't, you know... All the preparation was – it was like a play, you know, you, although not as intense where you go to rehearsal every day for four weeks or whatever those people do. Um, but, yeah, they would all just come over and we'd all be a little awkward because we know each other to varying degrees and some not. And then we'd read it and then they'd go home. That's it. And then I would think about what happened at the reading and maybe make some adjustments. Usually I didn't. I just wanted them to know it better and better. So 
were you scared to do this? Um, no, I don't think there was fear. I mean, I had a, I was just couldn't wait to do it. I was going crazy that I wanted to get started. And yet I've really valued the time that I had to prepare to get it right. The thing that started to happen is the, 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 cra- the more high caliber the cast got and the higher my hopes got for what the show could be, like when they built the bar, the first day I went to the bar in the set, um, it took my breath away. I was so happy <laughs> with that bar and every detail in it. Every time something got added, it's like this. Now that's good. Now that's really good. Even when the guy, this guy in the art department, I wish I knew his name. He painted the Horace and Pete sign, and it was beautiful to me. And when I got Paul Simon to do the to do the song, and once I had a, a, a CD of Paul Simon's song that he made for us, I thought, Jesus, this is a tremendous thing. This could be, could be. Um, that I had anxiety because of that waiting for it to happen and also because I was trying to keep it all secret there was this huge crazy pressure cooker of I can't I don't want anybody <laughs> to even know the, a whisper of this because and I wanted that because I that's the way I wanted the audience to see it I wanted them to see it without the slightest idea what they're going to see every second um, I wanted them not to know anybody who's seen it or have heard or read something about it I wanted them. The only thing I thought they'll know is they can check their little timeline and see that it's 65 minutes. But otherwise, they don't know anything. Who's going to pop up on screen? How long things are going to go? So I did. I went a little. I was going a little nuts. I had to do a lot of mind yoga and exercised a lot. I tried to take better care of myself so that I could handle that <laughs> that part. But it wasn't fear. Can you define mind yoga for me? <laughs> mind yoga? Well, you know, like just trying to be deliberate about taking, you know, getting a lot of sleep and taking care of myself. Um, but, and then the week we started, uh, that's when I got scared because it, I thought, well, this might not work because, right. I mean, there's the part that I think you're leaving unaddressed is, yeah, sure. Were you scared that you were going to do a bad job as an actor? In, well, I'm any part of it. Oh, uh, sure. Yes. I, I, <laughs> you're responsible for a number of different things yeah, in this a bunch production, of things. Louis. Well, I do have confidence and that I can do certain things. And I did, this show was a combination of a lot of things I've done already. And I've done them at least competently. At least I know how to do them. So I know how to bring actors together and direct. There are some things I had never done. I've never done anything like a play. I've never led a rehearsal, ever. I mean, when I shot my show, Louis, we didn't hold rehearsals. People would just come to the set and they'd always have this bewildered look like, am I going to get a chance to run this? And I've had many actors come up to me and go, so how are we doing this? I'm going, we're shooting first take. We're shooting it. And maybe you'll, something will happen. We want to use it. And, they, and you'd see them get upset. But I've learned that it's okay for an actor <laughs> to get upset and go back to their trailer and go, oh, my God, this is intense. They'll be okay. The pre- pressure's good for performers, you know. I would be worried that I would do something and not do a good job, and Needy Falco wouldn't like me anymore. Yes. Well, I don't worry about people not liking me uh, because it's all – I've had a lot of bad – plenty of bad experiences to train for that. It's just ha- what happens. But I did think I wanted not to let those actors down. I, of course, I had an apprehension about well, how am I going to measure up to this group? What am I going to give them that's any use to them? And I'm inventing something. So there isn't a way to do this that, you know, when all the pieces came together. But I've directed, I've shot, I did a multi-camera show with Lucky Louie. I wrote these things and I felt very good about the writing. I felt 
the writing was really solid. There were some scenes I was like, I don't know how that one's going to work. I didn't know. You don't know anything until you start seeing it go. And the the uh, essence of this project was that as we rehearsed, it would start in a bad, rough place. The first time you read something, it's not right. It's nobody knows what they're doing yet, and no one's connecting yet, and it's out of sync. So the first version you see stinks, and you have to go like, it's all right. It'll get better. But episode one, it was hard to have that because... I don't know if the whole mechanism worked. But that idea that the whole thing might have been a shouldn't have done it uh, creatively was exciting. That to me, I like to be in that unknown, you know. And I have directed quite a few heavyweight people. So I've had that moment of like the guy comes to the set. He's cranky because he didn't like his room or whatever, you know. And you just meet him and make him feel comfortable. I mean, I directed David Lynch and all kinds of people that no one's directed before in that kind of context. Um, so I'm used to that. I'm used to kind of keeping an even uh, heart rate while talking to somebody who's like a big deal to me and make and being of use to them. Not just like, you know, if you show if somebody big shows up and you go like, I'm such a huge fan. You just see him look at you like hey, you're not going to be any help to me. You know, they're actors. They want to be directed. And we it was very much a collaboration. I gave everybody notes, but they were spare. And then we would all talk as a group and go, feels good. Feels like something. I mean, we ran it a bunch of times the first day, the first episode. And then we all looked at each other and said, this is starting to work. This is starting to work. And I said, yeah, let's go home. And then we just did that every day till we shot it. I mean, you were inspired in part by Mike Lee. And mm -hmm. Mike Lee is a director who uh, is most famous for his films but started in theater and is famous for, I mean, the thing that I am often moved by in his movies is one of my faves is the kind of humanity and intimacy of his movies that you, the, a, a type of reality that you don't, uh, it's a theatrical reality that feels so true mm -hmm. um, that you don't get to see a lot in movies. That's right. His process involves basically putting everyone in a room and working out the entire thing over the course of months and months and months. That's right. That's right. That's what a lot of people do. And I think that whatever you do when you make theater or television or whatever, you fit into the schedule you're given. Whatever the demand is, you figure it out. You know, when I wrote for Conan, we did five shows a week, an hour each, up at least one piece of full-fledged comedy per show. It was just backbreaking. But we did it. We did it every day. Every day we made comedy. And then I worked on the Chris Rock show, and it was half an hour, and it was one a week. And so there was really only one or two pieces of comedy that had to be executed every week. It felt really hard, you know? So whatever amount of time you have, you'll use it. So this show was one week to execute a full-fledged play-like script. But we had a rhythm to it. We started, And we got better as we went along, I think. I it's some, Sometimes I think I wish I could have gone back, but... There's also a linear logic to the show being rough in the beginning and then smoothing towards the end. I'll finish my conversation with Louis C.K. after a break. He'll tell me why he decided to self-finance and distribute his show, Horace and Pete. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Target, who bring you this message. If you haven't yet, you have to check out Made to Matter, handpicked by Target. 
There's a natural wool dryer ball from Baby Gannix that cuts drying time up to 25% and lasts for 1,000 loads. And Bitsy's Brain Food has a line of USDA organic crackers that have half a serving of veggies in each serving. And they're made in a nut-free bakery. Check out all the Better For You products from Made to Matter at Target.com slash Made to Matter. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Let me introduce you to NPR Music's discovery podcast, Alt Latino. Hosts Felix Contreras and Jasmine Gard are your guides into the world of Latino arts and culture. And they're not taking a stodgy museum tour. Alternative approaches to traditional music, interviews with cultural icons like Rita Moreno and Carlos Santana, as well as contemporary vanguards like Calle Treche and Juno Diaz. Find Alt Latino at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian, writer, and director Louis C.K. He stars in his new show alongside Alan Alda, Steve Buscemi, and Jessica Lange. Uh, let's take a listen to another little bit of Horace and Pete, which is Louis C.K.'s new television show on his website, louisck.com. Uh, Steve Buscemi's character is uh, Pete. He plays the brother of Louis C.K.'s character. And this woman visits him at the bar. Uh, her name's Trisha. Uh, the two of them met in the uh, mental hospital. That's right. And she seems really lovely. She also has Tourette's. Um, she has an outburst in the middle of the bar. And so you'll hear Pete talking to Horace and uh, Uncle Pete, who's played by Alan Alda, who's kind of the um, – what passes for a paterfamilias, right? Like a sort mm-hmm. of <laughs> weird, gross, awful, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mean uncle dad. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Come on, she's a wacko, but she's very nice. And anyway, she obviously likes you. And, you know, anyway, you're... I mean... What? I'm what? No, what? Well, you think just because she's got a disorder and I got my thing that I have to be with her? What the f*** is that? I got to stick with my own kind? Just stay away from the normal girls, Pete. Just stay with your own up kind, Pete. I'm not saying any of that. I am. Makes sense. I mean, you two whack jobs should go together. Just don't have any babies. What I'm saying is that she's cute and she's nice and she likes you and you're 52. So how many more times is that going to happen for you? Look, I knew her at the hospital. We're not there anymore. That's that. So it, it was in the news. You went on Howard Stern and talked about uh, how the you paid for this production yourself mm-hmm. and it put you in debt. Yeah. I think maybe the news cycle interpreted that as Louis C.K. spent all his money on this show when I think it's probably more reasonable to say basically all businesses have capital expenditures and yes. they generally pay for those with debt. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it was a funny thing because I said – I mean I even said in the interview I went into debt and it will be gone by summer, which is an enormous – that's a huge turnaround. That's a great yeah. result. But it's more fun to just take – you know, he lost his money. It's like if you invested in something – like you bought a building and your plan is I'm going to buy this building. I'm going to spend $3 million on this building, flip it, and then sell it for $6 million. And then the day you write the check for $3 million, he lost $3 million. <laughs> he lost $3 million. So it was it was curious to see how that happened. The, the That kind of BuzzFeed, that, that press, that news cycle thing has gotten really strange. So it was weird to see how it came out. It didn't hurt me any. You know, the boosted sales it went through the roof the day that that came out. But um, But, yeah, the show's very healthy right now. I mean, it's it's on its way to paying for itself, and the sales increase as time goes by, so, and then I'll you know sell it to other outlets, and you know. 
what was the reason that you decided to pay for it with your own money, even if it was money that you felt like you were going to get back? I don't need a lot of money to feel good. I don't. And I don't need a... To I me, do. <laughs> well, money money is a resource to me. It's a element. It's like oxygen or water. It's something that you can make stuff with. I've always viewed it that way. And, I, you know, when I climbed in income in the last few years, I, I got some things that I wanted. And I'm done. I'm fine. I want security for my kids, but at the same time, that I don't hold as dear to that as other people do. Like, I want my kids not to worry about anything. That's a bizarre desire for me. You know, money is something to use in the present. I don't want to be homeless. Like, that's my one thing. I still always think someday I might. When I look like a frostbitten homeless guy, I'm like, that's could still be me. I still have that worry. I grew up poor in this party that makes you not afraid to be poor ever, which is powerful. And the other side is you really don't want to be poor. <laughs> so. Well, I think you also don't. One time, one time on my way to my sophomore year of college, mm-hmm. my dad just told me that this story about this part of his life where he was homeless. Yeah. And I was oh, like, wow. Oh, oh, oh. oh, my God. <laughs> that's intense. Yes, that's then you feel the ground open up beneath your feet. But but I understand. I, I understand very much the idea that uh, the idea of the feeling that like what you want to achieve is a certain amount of security, mm-hmm. uh, but that beyond that, there's not that much difference between a nice apartment and a really nice apartment. No, that's how I feel. I've got enough. And then when I look at the money and I look at whether I take on money or not, there's a few ways to get money. You can um, you can take on debt. You can buy money uh, that you don't have. Bizarre idea to me, but it does work. And then the other one is ask someone to invest and be a partner with you. That's what I knew I didn't want to do. Why is that? Because I didn't want to convince anybody of any of the ideas I had for this show and where I wanted to take it. Because you didn't want to go through the process of doing that? You didn't want people to change it? You didn't, Which part of it? Well, because I, I didn't want the stress of, of convincing people. And I also didn't want to take a risk with other people. I felt, I don't know, not morally, but I felt like it wasn't fair to take someone else's money with any confidence that they'd get it back and then play with this thing the way that I did. Because to me, it was so worthwhile to do this show in a way that was very counterintuitive financially. Every time I've put something on my website, like when I did the Beacon special, I went on Conan and said, here it comes. And there was a pent-up interest that really boosted sales. People liked to line up for an iPhone, even though they can get one you know, a week later without waiting in line. It has always increased sales on my website to announce things first. But I didn't do that. That was an enormous financial uh, mistake if you're looking at it from that point of view. But I knew that. I knew that going in. I launched the show on Saturday mornings, which is you, you can't, it's the dark side of the moon for uh, the cycle, you know, for viral sort of. I wanted people to share the show with each other. And I wanted people to either see it because I told them about it or because someone wrote them and said, I know you and I know you would love this. Like, I wanted it to grow that way. Um, I just wanted to see how that goes. Like, how that go. I thought it was worthwhile. And I kept making different decisions like that as I went along. I didn't want a partner to go, hey, man, I'm not going to do any press. None. I'm not going to do any press. Well, now the show's on the air and it's getting re- reviews. Do some press. Nah. Uh, make a trailer. I don't want to do. I didn't want to have that conversation with anybody except myself. 
Um, and so, yeah, when I started, I my hope was that the show's sales would feed the show. But as soon as it started, I realized, well, this is a different deal here. I The other things I've made have exploded sales-wise because I did it to sell. This I did differently. So I have to live with the fact that my audience is smaller than than what I'm used to. But it feels so good. Like, it was so fun. And then I would see the audience grow every week. And I thought, I want this to keep going organically. And also, I knew this isn't over. I'm going to go out and promote when it's done. I, I had that idea from the beginning. Once the whole show's done, I'll hit the pavement hard and promote it. I was trying to remember what the last time you were on the show was. And I, I remember that you definitely were on for uh, your show Lucky Louie, mm-hmm. which was a multi-camera sitcom on premium cable. Yeah. And I remember thinking about watching that show and it a lot of things worked about it. Some things didn't. Yeah. It was a mixed bag, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like the show in general and uh, don't want to present it as a failure for that reason. But mm-hmm. um, some things didn't work about it. Uh, one of the things that worked less good was uh, you were not a very good actor in it. It was terrible, yeah. You, there was something like you were funny in it and stuff. Yeah, but, in moments. But I didn't know how to listen and act at all. So in part of what this show is to my eyes mm-hmm. is you putting yourself in a position to not only have to do comic acting but also real powerful emotional acting i'm not talking about yelling on the waterfront mm-hmm. monologues but <laughs> but like real emotional acting mm-hmm. and did you feel confident that you could do that no i wasn't sure i would step up uh, especially considering who i was working with but we were a family, and it felt like it on the show. I don't mean family like the way people say that about every production. We're really a family. I mean like that family that we were playing. And I had my place in that family. And also I thought very differently about this show because I knew it was this 10-part thing, and we're not going to give you everything every episode. There's all these things that happen in series television. Like you kind of want everything to pay off the same way every episode. You want to know this character does this, so this is what this character does. And I remember when I looked at the first episode of Horace and Pete, the script, I thought, Horace isn't really developed in this episode. He's developed much more in the second episode. And I thought, that's okay. Leave it that way. And then Horace is revealed a little bit more way down. I think it's episode seven. I mean, episode three, you hear more backstory because he meets his ex-wife. Then episode seven, he tells a stranger a huge secret about himself. Then you see him tested when his brother disappears because he's a very immobile person emotionally. He doesn't – he's kind of shut down. But when his brother disappears, he becomes unhinged. So I didn't mind it. I didn't feel like you had to see – front load all that stuff. You'll you'll find it if, if you stick with it. If you don't, you don't. I'm lucky I put a lot of the really heavy stuff towards the end because by the time it got there to episode 8 and 9 when Pete starts to become – you know, when things get intense – I felt who I was in the show and I was very attached to Steve Buscemi and I felt a relationship with Sylvia as a sister and all this stuff. So I didn't really act. I just felt all those things. My guest is Louis C.K. We're talking about his show Horace and Pete, which he self-financed and self-distributed. Let's listen to another clip from the show. In this scene, Horace is talking to his ex, Sarah, who's played by Laurie Metcalf. She's cheated on her second husband. She's trying to find some solace. (laughs) <laughs> what am I? You're just like a whole bunch of other people, Sarah. 
like a lot of other people. Like you could field an army with how many people have been in your situation. Literally, you could gather the cheaters of the world and you could wage war on the honest and you'd win. Oh, God, you're awful. You're going to be okay, you know. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay, Sarah. Well, I don't know how you know that. Because. You know how I know it? Because I'm okay. And I was right where you are. And I'm okay. What about Glenn? He'll be okay, too. Because he is where you were. And you're okay. Yeah. And his kids will be fine. Because look at our kids. Sometimes before I do one of these interviews, I'll look at like a the Wikipedia entry or like, you know, TV, whatever, dot com, just to remind myself like what the characters' names are because I will forget. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that your character, Horace's last name was Whittle, which I don't think I had noticed yeah. in watching the show. Yeah. The whole family is the Whittle family. And I don't think I'd put that together or, or heard it together. And um uh, there was a comedy writer and, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometime performer mm-hmm. named Harris Whittles who uh, died about a year ago. Yep. Um, who was very beloved in the uh, Los Angeles comedy scene particularly. Yep. yep. And I know you worked with him. Was was yeah. was that an homage? Yeah. When I started writing the show, I didn't have a last name. I just had the first names. And then the first time I – in the first episode, because there was a legal dispute, the lawyer says the family name. And I stopped writing and went, eh, what's their last name? And I thought, uh, something Irish, I guess. It feels like an Irish bar. I don't, I don't want it to be Mc, McSorley or something. Or, you know, I didn't want to do an Irish name. And then I just thought about Whittle. I thought about Harris. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, I really miss him. I was very sad when he, when he died. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, it's funny, I, you know, I didn't have much contact with him his last year or so of life, but it's just a bummer because he, you know, um, died from heroin and I've lost a crazy amount of friends that way. I don't think you should know more than one person who died of a heroin overdose in your lifetime. And I think I've known four or five who died from heroin and it's such a losing battle. I mean, when somebody knows that drug they're just it's just a time clock how long can they last but anyway yeah harris was a really good guy and he was a real you know he's he's a real demon you know he had demons but he was also you know he's a real bastard like in his own way and uh he laid out his crazy gross self for all of us that knew him and everybody accepted him we everybody loved him he was a communally loved guy do you know what i mean um anyway yeah, I don't know why his name hit me in the head when I was writing it, but I was like, yeah, let's give Harris, a, let's give them his last name. So that's how it became Harris Whittle, Horace Whittle. But I, Horace was first. I didn't think of his, you know what I mean? It was really his last name. And then I realized it sounds like Horace Whittle, Harris Whittle. Yeah, why not? Anyway, yep. Well, Louie, I don't want to take up more of your time, but I really appreciate you uh, making the trip over and coming sure, back Sure, man. Show. Happy to do it. I love listening to this show. It's really fun. Um, I listen to it all the time. NPR is my house uh, soundtrack. I just have it on all the time, and I'm always happy when you when you come on. Oh, you always do really great interviews with people, so 
And I enjoyed it last time I was here. So. Louis C.K.'s new show is called Horace and Pete. Uh, it's on louisck.com mm-hmm. right now, and you can watch all 10 episodes. Yep. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. So there's a website. It's called Zombo.com. When you visit Zombo.com, you see a sort of lo-fi picture of a flower, like really lo-fi, like somebody made it with some circles from Microsoft Paint. And it's sort of animated, like it blinks. And at the top, there's this header. It's this key lime green gradient and Zombo.com written in a font that looks like you would use it for a preschool carnival. Oh, and uh, one other thing on Zombo.com. It plays this sound. Welcome to Zombo.com. This is Zombo.com. Welcome. This is Zombo.com. Welcome to Zombo.com. You can do anything at Zombo.com. Anything at all. That, by the way, just goes on and on. One time I made it to the end, but it seriously took me leaving my computer and coming back. Anyway, this website, it's been the same for coming up on 20 years. This same strange, beautiful dream from when the web was a baby and everybody was full of promises. I guess it's not a hilarious joke exactly. I mean, even in 1999, it wasn't exactly Oscar Wilde. And those flash splash pages that used to be on websites, the thing that it parodies, I guess don't even really exist anymore. But I still visit once in a while just to make sure there's something on the Internet that will always be the same. It's nice to visit an old friend. That's my outshot. Welcome to ZomboCom. This is Zombocom. Welcome to Zombocom. Welcome. This is Zombocom. Welcome to Zombocom. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Anything is possible on Bullseye. You can do anything on Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian Explorello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Help this week from Jennifer Marmer. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. That's right, everything great, not just Zombo.com. This week, the team remember Prince, and they react to Beyonce's visual album, Lemonade. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 